Psalm 147 tonight in your Bibles. One of the big deals on our church calendar we haven't yet highlighted is going to be the November 11th Veterans Day Sunday morning service. We have a lot of really special things planned. Our choir is going to be singing a special number. We're going to have a color guard that day. Our auditorium will be decorated to honor our veterans. And so if you know people who have served in the military, uh, do your best to get them here for that day. There's a lot of things going on on Veterans Day for veterans, but most of them involve alcohol. And so let's get them here instead of at the parties where the alcohol is, and let's let them hear how to be uh, controlled by the Spirit instead of controlled by drink. Amen? And so uh, we want to honor our veterans that are within our church, but also honor those that uh, don't regularly come here, and that's going to be a lot of fun on that day. Uh, So a whole patriotic-themed service and whatnot. Psalm 147, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. As is our custom. We'll read the first five verses of the chapter, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant and praise is comely. The Lord doth build up Jerusalem. He gathereth together the outcasts of Israel. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. His understanding is infinite. We're in a series here about theology, the doctrine of God the Father. Last week we looked at God's omnipotence. Tonight we'll look at God's omniscience. And this title of the sermon is this, God is a know-it-all. Yet he still loves you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we pray tonight that you'd help us to understand the sermon. And Lord, I pray that uh, the few notes I have down here in front of me would um, come together in a way that uh, edifies you. Lord, I feel as though I'm tasked with describing a person that is completely indescribable. But Lord, with my weak and feeble mind and my fallen frame, help me to do the best I can to give you the glory and honor that you deserve tonight. Help us as a church as we honor you for knowing everything. And Lord, may it remind us, God, of how ever-present and intimate to us you are. And Lord, may we keep that in mind as we go about our days, our weeks, and Lord, that our actions and attitudes and our habits would be uh, done in a way that pleases the God who knows everything about us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Anybody here uh, ever met or had to live with a know-it-all? Got a couple, some married couples are staring at each other right now. You ever been, ever been roommates with in college a know-it-all or had a child that was a know-it-all? You know... When children are little, they ask why, because they think you know everything. And then they get to those teen years, and they start asking why, because they think they know everything. All right? And, um, I, you know, the older I get, the more, the more I realize how little I know. Anybody with me on that? Every day I wake up and say, wow, there's that much more information I 
didn't know. And I was concrete on this opinion, and now I'm becoming less concrete on, uh, on some of those things. Not things in the Bible, but, but uh, you know, other things. Um, know-it-alls are special people. They're special people. We have a know-it-all that uh, is paid through your tithes and offerings here at White Oak Baptist Church. Did you know that we have been blessed to have a staff member here who is a walking Google machine? A walking Google machine. If, if, if our internet breaks, as it was doing recently until Brother Joe was able to fix it, um, and we needed to know something, we just went to this person and asked, and it was just like punching it into Google. It was great. In fact, last uh, Christmas, my wife and I, we gave gifts to each and every staff member and their child uh, uh, on, uh, that, that, that work here at the church. And for many of them, we gave them coffee mugs. So my wife and I are standing in, um, I believe it was Burlington here in Stratford, looking at all of their coffee mugs and trying to pick one that went with each personality and... Uh, and so we had everyone uh, selected except one staff lady. We couldn't figure out what to get her. And I looked at Angela and I said, that is the mug to give her. Well, the mug was for Krista. And the mug read, I don't need Google. My husband already knows everything. <laughs> it was a lot of fun watching her open that at that Christmas party. And uh, they, uh, it fit. It worked. Um, last week, we looked long and hard at God's power. We talked just that there is no end to it. There's no limit to it, right? I mean, he's beyond powerful. This morning, we talked about how that God is infinite. Here in Psalm 147, uh, the word describing his understanding is infinite, but the truth is his power has no limitation. I love the uh, question. I've been asked out on soul winning by a smart aleck many times. And I've heard of this question repeated by other atheists of the sorts. And they'll ask this question. Let's say, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? How many of you here have never heard that before? There is no answer to that question. He can make a rock as big as he wants to. And he can put it wherever he wants Right. Um, specifically, last week we talked about what God does with all His power. We looked closely at the 115th Psalm and saw that uh, God uses all that power to be our source of protection. Our source of protection. He is our help and our shield. Looking around here, my wife has slipped out. This is perfect timing. Um, we have had, and I've mentioned this before, we've had mice problems in our home in the past. We don't have one right now that I know of. And if you know that we have a mouse problem, don't tell us, okay? Just, just better not to. In fact, I don't lie very often, but I have lied about whether or not there have been mice in our house. Because, you know, sometimes, anyway, you, don't, you, you might judge me, but that's okay. God knows, amen? Um, I, uh, I love this, though, about fear in my wife. We're laying in bed together. I'm most of the way asleep. And there will be a noise in the house. And the next thing I know, she snuggled up to me real close and holding on to my arm. 
And um, she looks to me to be her protection and her shield. Now, I've got to tell you, my power is pretty limited, right? My, uh, my, my muscles are nowhere near the gentleman we talked about this morning. Um, but my wife looks to me to be that protector. When we were dating, she would say to me, I feel safe with you. I feel safe with you. Ladies, that's all you, how you ought to feel when you're with your husbands. You ought to feel safe. Um, that's what God is to the Christian. He is the shield and the, the help in the shield. He is our protection. We also talked about how that God, with all that power, is our source of production. And we, uh, we looked at how that God is the source of all of our increase. If you have become smarter, it isn't just because you read a book. It isn't because you went through a tough time and learned some life lessons. If uh, you've gotten richer, it isn't just because you outworked everyone around you and, 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 and got that. Uh, God is the provider of all increase in our life. All increase in our life. Now, tonight we're going to turn our attention and talk about the omniscience of God. And He knows everything. 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 I've used this illustration several times. I'll reference it quickly and, and then make another point with it. I've talked about having all of your thoughts put up on that screen from the last seven days. I've mentioned that before. And nobody wants to do that, right? Because that would embarrass all of us. But God knows those thoughts, every one of them. And yet He still loves you. He still loves you. Statistically speaking, in uh, 365 days, somebody that's here now will not be in church at all. 365 days. I hope that's not true. You ought to determine right now it's not going to be you. Amen? But statistically speaking, it will happen to somebody. Um, Did you know that God already knows your future failures? But that doesn't change how much He loves you right now. Or how much he'll love you then. You see, God's love for us is not based on our character or lack thereof. It's based on his. Um, I had this profound thought come to me one day as I was sitting uh, in my living room. My wife walked by and I stopped her and I said, Do you know why it is that I love you? And she stopped and said, Lay it on me, big boy. Go ahead and tell me. And I said, nobody knows me better than you do. You see the backstage version of Pastor Lejeune. You see me when I wake up grouchy. You know about many of my sin struggles that I have had and have. Um, You see me when I wake up on the wrong side of the bed and when I wake up with bed hair, and when I wake up with no hair. And you still love me anyway. That's a pretty good reason to love somebody, isn't it? You still choose to follow me anyway. Now, as well as my wife knows me, God knows me on a much, 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 much deeper level. Much deeper level. And he loves me anyway. Folks, if that's all you get out of church tonight, that is a powerful thought. 
a lot of independent fundamental Baptist churches will make you feel as though if you don't go soul winning and you don't dress right and talk right and act right, then God hates you. You say, Pastor, why are you labeling IFB churches that way? Look, I'm 34 years in the IFB movement. I know it as well as anybody does. I have sat in church and been made to feel like if I didn't do a certain, live a certain way, God didn't love me. God loves me whether I go soul winning or not. God loves me whether I cuss or not. God loves me whether I'm faithful to my wife or not. You see, I don't behave because I want God to love me. I behave because God loves me unconditionally. And that is the fuel that pushes me. Now, as we dive in tonight and look at this thought about God knowing everything, I I propose that if we could get a better understanding of who God is and specifically how much He really does know about us, then we would work harder to serve Him and give Him that love back. Let's jump in tonight and look at five topics that God knows everything about and let us marvel at our God this evening. Let's take a close look at our God, our know-it-all God that still chooses to love us. Number one tonight, notice His knowledge of the technical. His knowledge of the technical. Look at verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 147. Psalm 147, verse 4 and 5. The Bible says, He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. You've been out in the country and looked up at the sky and you see how many stars are up there and you know that God knows every one of them, every detail about every one of them, and He knows each one of them by a name. That's impressive. Look down at verse 8. Look down at verse number 8. The Bible says, Who covereth the heaven with clouds, who prepareth rain for the earth, who maketh grass to grow upon the mountains. He giveth to the beast his food, and to the young ravens which cry. Yesterday I got home from um, our soul winning visitation uh, meeting, and I went out for a little bit, made made a couple of visits. Um, It was raining. I really wanted to go door knocking and, and lead someone to the Lord yesterday, but it was just pouring rain. So I made church visits instead. And when I finished up with that, I, I headed home and I got home and I, I said to my wife, I said, I, I want to go, I want to go for a walk by myself and just talk with the Lord. And I hadn't had a chance to pray that morning before I left. So I, um, I, I, I can I just be honest, I overslept a little bit. So I missed my prayer time that morning. So I made sure I got out that, um, that morning. And, and as I was coming home, uh, from a, about a mile and a half or two mile walk, I came, uh, was walking down my street, and the storm had blown all these leaves all over the road, right? Kind of like they're, they are out here right now. And I stopped, and I knew what I was preaching today, and I stopped and I thought about this. I thought, every single one of those leaves on that road, thousands of them, just on this road, God knows about every one of those leaves. Every one of them. He knows the history of that leaf. He knows when it first blossomed and when it fell off the tree to die. He knows where they'll go from here, how they'll be composed and done away with. He knows how many veins are in each leaf. Every one of them. How many billions of leaves there are there in the world. God knows every one of them. God's knowledge of the technical. Knowledge of the technical. 
that will just blow you away that there is a God who could have all of that information. Now, the problem with humanity is that we go through life thinking that we know more than everybody else. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. And that really is, when we say a know-it-all, that really is the attitude we're talking about. And it's a little bit of an arrogancy is, I know what's best. Don't tell me what to do. And, you know, there are these arrogant atheists who claim there is no God. And I want to step back and go, who are you to draw that conclusion? What percentage of the world's knowledge do you even know? How many of you here rode in a car to get to church tonight? Would you hold up your hand? Do you know how many inches away you got from the center line on average as you were riding down the road? Do you know that? Do you know how many cars you passed on the way here? Do you know the names of the people in those cars? How many hairs are on their head? How many times they've lost their temper in their life? How many tears they've shed? How many times they've laughed today, this week, this month, this year, last year? God knows all of that about every human being alive today and that's ever lived. His knowledge of the technical. It's, it's profound. You can go through the Bible and see how, just how much God knows. Number two, notice his knowledge of tomorrow. His knowledge of tomorrow. Turn with me, if you would, over to Isaiah chapter 42 and verse number 9. Both this morning and this evening, I don't know that I'm going to uncover anything or share anything from a new angle or give you any information that's new. Sometimes it's good to just look at truths that we know and be reminded of them. Amen? Isaiah 42, verse 9. The Bible says, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You remember the story in Job where uh, the devil has to report back to heaven and And God looks at Satan and he says, what have you been up to? And he says, going to and fro throughout the earth, walking up and down in it. You know that God doesn't go to and fro throughout the earth, walking up and down in it? Because he's already there. Satan arrives somewhere, God's already there. Satan leaves somewhere, God stays there and is already where Satan's going to go. David put it this way, I don't have the verses in front of me, but if I ascend into the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. I can't get away from you, God. The word hell there is in the, in the Hebrew is shehol, which means the underworld or the grave. I, I can't, no matter where I go, you're there. You're there. But what's fascinating about God is not only is he here and in China at the same time, and everywhere in between, he's also in yesterday and today. He's in tomorrow and today. What's the song? He's already in your tomorrows. He's walking one step ahead. Whether it's joy or it's sorrow, He'll do just as He said. I'm thankful that we have a God who already knows our tomorrows. Turn with me, if you would, over to Acts chapter 3. Hold your place in Psalm, by the way. We'll be coming back to Psalm if you've already left there, but uh, you can find that Psalm. um, uh, I believe we were in 147. We'll be referencing back to that here in a moment, but... 
Turn to Acts 3. While you're making your way to Acts 3, let me read for you Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 35 and 36 says this, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, this is a very fascinating verse and one that kind of makes my brain stutter a little bit. God is three and one, right? We talked about this, that this morning. He's three individual beings, but yet he's one being. And again, we talk about how we can't understand that. But if he is one being, there is one piece of information we know of that only God the Father knows and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit don't know. And that's when Jesus is going to come back and get his bride. When that trumpet's going to blow and the church will rise and the dead in Christ, those in the church that have already passed away, they'll rise. But God already knows when that date is coming. Uh, you know, I think sometimes that we think, well, you know, God's just kind of watching and impromptu playing it by ear. And when he is good and ready and when he wakes up one day and says, ah, I think today's the day he'll send Jesus down and the trump will blow. No, God already knows on our time calendar when it is. And the cool part about it is, is that he's already there. He's there every day. Right. He knows. No man knows. But God knows when that's going to happen, and He knows every detail about every part of your life between now and then. Whether or not you'll lay in the grave between now and then or not, and up to that point of resurrection, whether it's from the dead or as you're walking the earth, He knows every thought you'll think, every word you'll say. He knows every sin you'll commit, every righteous deed you'll do on His behalf. He already knows because He's there present with you. At that time, his knowledge of tomorrow. Acts 3.18 says this. Look at Acts 3.18. But those things which God before hath showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. The, the Old Testament is amazing because it gives thousands of details about the life of Christ. And then Jesus comes along and fulfills them all. And you go, how in the world is that possible? Well, it's not that complicated, really. God looked ahead in time and saw how Jesus would live his life and die. And then he went back into the Old Testament, not being restricted by time. And he had the prophets write down those events that were happening in, in, in those tomorrows that God was already in. And so the prophets were writing about something that happened in the past. Is it really prophecy if you write about something that's already happened? That's not prophecy, right? That's history. Well, the cool thing about prophecy is that for us, it's prophecy. But for God, it was history. Isn't that a neat thought? Hey, in his mind, in in his world, it had already happened because he knew all about it. His knowledge of tomorrow. You You can take comfort tonight, my friend, that God knows whether or not you'll get that job that you're applying for. He's already there. You can take comfort, my friend, that God knows the end result of the sickness or the unknown that you're facing in your life because he's already there. His knowledge of the technical, his knowledge of tomorrow, number three, his knowledge of our thoughts, his knowledge of our thoughts. Now, this is where it really starts to turn personal. Are you, you still have your place in Psalm 147. Flip back over in that direction and look with me at Psalm 139. That should just be a page or two away from uh, Psalm 147 there in your Bible. Psalm 139, and look at verse 23. Boy, if you really, really are trying to get close with the Lord, this is a verse that ought to be near and dear to your heart. 
This is a verse you ought to quote regularly in prayer. I find this verse tripping off of my lips regularly when I pray because I want God to have all of me. And I've got to be honest, he doesn't always have all of me, but I want that. And so get, get, uh, get warm and cozy with this verse, but look at it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, try me, and know my thoughts. The mind is a scary place. If there's one private area in my life that no one but God knows about, it's my mind. My wife doesn't know what goes on there all the time. My children don't know. You say, well, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's right. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. That's right. But we can get to a place where we get really good at having a mind that is proud and sinful. And we find a way to hide that behind pious spiritual talk. We get good at that at church. Then we can even get so good at our game, we do it with our family. We do it with our family. Where we talk one way, but those imaginations that come across our mind are filthy and sinful. What does First uh, John, I believe it is, tell us is the is uh, is the root of all sin? It's it's pride, lust of the eyes, and lust of the flesh. Right? Um, the, the pride the pride of the heart, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and that's where those sins thrive the most because it's secret. It's secret secret. Nobody knows. My friend, God does. He knows our thoughts. I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 with me. We're going to look at uh, chapter 4, verse 12. It's a verse that if you've been going to church for any length of time, you are the least familiar with. There's a good chance you haven't memorized. But what I want you to see is the verse within context, all right? Uh, We're going to look at Hebrews 4, verse 12 in just a minute. Genesis 6, 5 says, "...and God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth." And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, God looked down right before the flood and what he saw. Please uh, stay engaged with me mentally here. Okay, let me have your eyeballs. What he saw, what he saw, or rather what mankind saw was uh, the sons of, of God marrying the daughters of man. If I'm remembering that right out of Genesis 6-2. And they saw a bunch of good-looking couples getting married and having babies. And some of these maybe even went through some religious rituals. Some of them maybe even acted spiritual in some way. But God looked straight through the good looks of, of the couples. He looked straight through any religious ceremonies they had. He looked straight through that, cut through the chase, and looked at their heart. And here's what he said. He said, every imagination of their thoughts is only evil continually. God can see every thought like it's on a gigantic screen right in front of him. Not only is it observable to him, he knows it. He has it memorized inside and out better than you know John 3.16. And that's about you. Oh, be careful, little Mind what you think, for the Father up above is looking down in love. He knows our thoughts. He knows our thoughts. 
Look, that is both uh, uh, awesome and amazing, and that is a terrifying, scary thought, all wrapped up in once, that God knows every thought we think. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, who you are and how you act, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We know that Jesus is the living word. He is the living two-edged sword. Look at verse 13. Now, we read verse 12, we memorize verse 12, but verse 13 doesn't get a whole lot of attention. This is fascinating. Look at this. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest, not known, not seen in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All things. All things. They're all made manifest. They're all laid wide open. God knows our thoughts. Number one, He knows His knowledge of the technical. Number two, His knowledge of tomorrow. Number three, His knowledge of our thoughts. Number four, His knowledge of our temptations. Of our temptations. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31. I grew up in churches where the preacher would have you read half a verse, he'd close the Bible, and he'd yell at you for an hour. And he'd say, shut your Bible now, I'm preaching. Um, that's, that has created so many problems in the Christian world, I can't even begin to tell you how many problems that has caused. You don't show up at 6 o'clock on a Sunday evening when you could be sitting at home sipping hot cocoa with marshmallows on top by a fire, right? Listening to whatever you listen to or watching whatever you watch. You don't leave that to come to church to hear a 34-year-old give his opinion. You just don't. If you do, then God bless your soul. Amen? I hope you come here to hear the Word of God preached. And so don't be lazy. When I ask you to turn to a passage, turn to the passage. Amen? Open your Bible there and look at it, because it's God's Word that you came to hear, not me. Deuteronomy 31, look at verse number 19. Now therefore write ye this song for you, and teach it the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. For when I shall have brought them into the land which I swear unto their fathers that flow with, with milk and honey, and they shall have eaten and filled themselves in wax and fat, then uh, will they turn unto other gods and serve them and provoke them and break my covenant. And it shall come to pass when many evils and troubles are befallen them that this song shall testify against them as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten out of the mouths of their seed, for I know their imaginations which they go about even now before I have brought them into the land which I swear. Now, I want you to picture the climate here. They're right there on the brink, getting ready to cross over the Jordan River and go conquer Jericho. They're right there on the brink. Moses is getting ready to go up in the mountain and die. And one of the last things that God tells Moses to do is teach my 
people this song. And it was a song that they would sing and pass down to their children and their children's children and their children's children's children. And on down the lineage it would go. And I'm sure Moses is thinking to himself, uh, but God, the people here, they love you. This is the new generation coming up. Their parents are all almost all dead. They're getting ready to go in and conquer. And, and God, they don't have the temptation of being faithless and idolatrous the way their parents did. They're, they're on fire for you. This would have been Israel's greatest generation. And God said, I know their thoughts. Teach them the song. Because once they have gotten settled in, and these thoughts become deeds in their grandchildren and great-grandchildren, they're going to, they're going to slide off into idolatry, and I want the song they learn today to be a testimony against the temptation and the thoughts that they have today, and that will manifest themselves in deeds in generations to come. I want that song to testify against them. God said, not only do I know your thoughts, but I know your temptations. I know your temptations. Satan likes to play a game. He likes to sit on your shoulder. And when you do wrong, he likes to tell you, you are a terrible person. You know nobody else at White Oak Baptist Church struggles with that but you. You're the only one. You have anxiety and fear on a level that nobody else has. You are the most critical person at White Oak Baptist Church. You're an awful person. You struggle with pride like nobody else. You deal with lust and covetousness more than anybody else. You are awful. And he likes to take us and put us on our own little island. And make us think that we'll never, ever, ever, ever conquer that sin. Never, ever, ever conquer that sin. And here's the truth. God knows your temptation. Can I ask you a question tonight? When you pray, how honest are you with God? We get really good at putting on this facade and looking like we got it all figured out. If we're not careful, we'll take that facade into our prayer closet. We won't tell God about our sins. You know, when I, when I confess my sin to God, which I do every day, I'm very blunt with God about the sins I committed. I put them, without cursing, I put them in the most base terms possible. And I tell God what I did that was wrong. And you know what it makes me feel? makes me feel a couple of things. At first, it makes me feel really guilty over my sin. You did what? And when I hear myself say it, I go, wow. I can't believe you struggled with that. Then I feel this overflowing spirit of grace pour all over me. And a spirit of cleansing that comes about me. And I know that my God in heaven is thankful with me because I was honest to him about my own sin. Hey, why are you hiding anything from God? He already knows. Do you think that somehow you can lie to yourself and lie to God and actually change the facts about who you are and the struggles you have? 
Be honest with God. It will help you get a fair evaluation of your struggles and where you are. And God looks down and He says, Hey, don't pretend that I don't know about every temptation that you have. Don't pretend that I don't know about the besetting sins that circle you. Job said this so eloquently in 1416. He said, For now thou numberest my steps, dost thou not watch over my sin? Hey, you watch every step I take. Don't, do you not know about, oh my sin? Do you not watch over it? Do you not see it? Do you not witness it? My friend, God knows about every temptation that you face. Every one of them. And God is there with you, battling alongside of you, helping you to overcome it. You say, Pastor, does God hate me when I fall in my sin? Can I just tell you tonight that God knows that you were born with an Adamic sin nature, the struggle. God knows that you were going to fall and fail and slip up and mess up over and over again. And God does not hate you when you lose the battle of temptation. What God wants to see is that He pours His love on you and you stand up, and you struggle against that sin, and in time, He gives you the victory. Don't you cower in defeat because you failed and think God hates you because you failed. My friend, God knows. He knows you're weak, and His grace is sufficient in your time of trouble. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we, we quote it often, but listen to it carefully here. Don't let the words go in one ear and out the other. Let them sink down into your heart and stick there. Let them lodge there like darts on a dartboard. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be attempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. What is God doing here? God is alongside of you, flying the plane with you through the storm. And when the temptation, a storm temptation comes along, God's saying, hey, look, I'm not going to allow this storm to take you down unless you let it take you down. I will provide a way of escape. Every single time you say, Pastor, you don't get it. I have battled with this, this, this and this for years and I have tried to get the victory and I can't. Can I just tell you something I read recently that, man, it jumped off the page and smacked me across the cheek. I read an author who was talking about uh, Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And he said this. He said, the Christian life is not about self-improvement. The Christian life is about self-abandonment. When I read that, I said, ouch. Quit trying to win the battle against your temptation and give it to God and let Him and His power win it through you. That's the answer. He knows your temptations. He knows when you when you fail and He knows when you turn it over to Him and let Him give you the victory. But if you keep trying to fight it in your own flesh, you're not going to be able to do it. He knows your temptation and yet He loves you anyway. Number five, and lastly, notice His knowledge of our tears. We looked at His knowledge of the technical. Tomorrow, our thoughts, our temptation. Number five, our tears. Our tears. Go back to Psalm 147 where we began this evening and look at verse number 2. Boy, we get the message of who God is right here in these two verses. The Lord doth build up Jerusalem. Look here. He gathereth together the outcasts of Israel. You know, God doesn't God's not drawn to people who have it all put together. 
God's drawn to the outcasts. You might remember in the New Testament, Jesus said that the whole need not a physician, but the sick. Right? Look at the 12 men Jesus surrounded himself with. They were all outcasts of society in one way or the other. Every one of them. Even those that had money, like Levi or Matthew, was pushed out socially. And God brought him in. Look at, um, look at verse 3. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. Turn over to Psalm chapter 56 with me. You can let go of 147. We're finished there this evening. Turn over to Psalm 56. You know, there is a, uh, a false mindset that I have been plagued with as a Christian for years. And this is the mindset that, yeah, I'm crying bitter tears, but these tears are being cried because of my own bad choices. Surely God isn't going to console me when I'm hurting because of my own mistakes. Part of the maturation of being a Christian is that you get to the place where you quit pointing fingers at everyone else for your problems, and you learn to just own it, right? I hope you understand that. When you quit pointing the, wife at your, the, the, the finger at your wife or your husband for a bad marriage and start pointing it at yourself, that's a sign you're maturing in the Lord. When things go awry at work, you quit blaming the boss and you start looking at yourself. Right? It's not his or her fault, it's my fault. That's a sign of maturity. The danger in that, and so I'm speaking right now, I hope you understand, I'm speaking to Christians who are a little more mature. Christians that have reached the level where they don't default to blame, they default to owning it. All right? Part of the danger of owning your mistakes is that you can get to the place where you think God has no pity on you because your tears are your own fault. Surely he doesn't care. You know, God knows that we're frail and broken. He knows that we're going to blow it. And he knows that we're going to cry tears. I guess a good way of explaining this is... um, when I have to punish my children, the Bible tells us that God is our Father, right? Sometimes He chastises us. Usually when I punish my children, there is a point where they are brought to tears. If they have been brought to tears through punishment, was it my fault or their fault? It was their fault. But do you know that after I have punished them, I want nothing more than to catch their tears on my shoulder, to embrace them and love them. And God does the same thing for you. Whether it's your fault or not, whether you were abandoned in a relationship, whether you were stabbed in the back by a friend, whether you lost a a life suddenly or maybe even not so suddenly, and you find yourself alone in a bed, alone on a couch, all by yourself, riding down the road in your car, tears streaming down your cheeks, and your heart hurts. My friend, God knows about every tear you cry. And He cares. He has them numbered. Look at Psalm 56, verse 8. Thou tellest my wonderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? Somewhere in heaven there is a bucket 
with every tear you've cried. Now, some of you, your bucket's bigger than others. Okay? And Jeremiah's bucket was probably the biggest. He was known as the weeping prophet. I, I wonder if there won't be sections of heaven with odd things. You know, like the buckets of the tears of the saints. We know that the prayers of the saints will be offered up one day in heaven. But God has your tears held in heaven. Not only that, but he's recorded the times you cried in the book. He knows all about it. Now, I want you to stop and get a a bird's eye view of the whole sermon. God knows every detail about every animal, about every blade of grass, every star in the sky, every grain of sand. He not only knows uh, all of the technical, he already knows your tomorrow, whether you'll fail or succeed. He not only knows tomorrow, he knows every thought you think, both good and bad. He not only knows the thoughts you think, he knows about the temptations and when you succeed and fail in your temptation. And then that God, don't miss this, this is the sermon, that God that knows all of that is still there to catch your tears in a bottle and love you anyway. He's a know-it-all God. Yet somehow he still loves me. And he still loves you. Here's the, here's the, here's the sermon. Here's a question for you to, to conclude the sermon. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? God loves you through thick and thin, through ups and downs, good and bad. You going to love him back? You're going to walk over that love. When I counsel relationships, what I often find is that at least one of the two in that relationship is selfish. The other one gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. The other person takes and takes and takes and takes and takes and gives just enough to string the other person along. God is giving and giving and giving and giving. You know what makes for a happy relationship? When both parties are giving and giving and giving and giving. Now, you can't outgive God, right? Isn't it amazing that He knows everything about us, yet He's still good to us? And we can know everything that we can about Him, and we're not very good to Him all the time. Why don't we take those areas where we're not loving God back the way we ought to? We're not reciprocating that love. And just decide right now that with what I know about God, He's worthy of my service. He's worthy of my honor, my glory. He's worthy. I'm going to do my part to take this God that knows everything about me and love him back. Let's have our heads about nice closed this evening. God, you're amazing. The English language, nor any other language... There isn't a language in the world that has a word in its dictionary that describes how awesome you are. Lord, you're infinite on a level we don't even understand. Part of you being infinite is that you know everything about us. You know everything about everything. How you can love me when you know what you know about me is beyond my comprehension. Lord, as the Apostle Paul said, may your love constrain us to do what's right. Lord, I pray this profound thought would move us to action, would move us to be more devoted to you,
Move us to love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand to our feet. The piano's playing. The altar's open. How about it tonight? Are you going to love God back? Because he has loved you so deeply. In spite of everything he knows about how broken you are. During this time of invitation, let me encourage you to get down on your knees or maybe take a seat where you're at or where you're at just to confess your sins to the Lord. Make sure your heart is pure before God prior to taking the Lord's Supper. Maybe the most intimate thing we do as a church 